Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Father, as we open your word, we pray that you would speak to us of the hope and the glory of resurrection. In Christ's name, amen. I have to confess that as a pastor, as an interpreter of Scripture, I like to be subtle. I appreciate nuance, but occasionally it makes sense to just be obvious. And I think on Easter Sunday, it's one of those occasions where we could benefit from a little bit of directness, maybe a little less nuance. Admiral Nelson supposedly said to his captains, never mind maneuvers, go straight at them. And so this morning, we're going to try to go straight at the fact of the resurrection and speak about why it is that we are gathered here this morning. To do that, we're going to consider two realities that are diametrically opposed to one another. And how it is that God changes one reality into another. Once we've seen that, we'll understand the way that Christ's resurrection has given a new meaning to death itself. We're so divided these days. Our society is so polarized. Our churches are so divided and polarized. We're constantly bemoaning this fact as if it suggests we've reached a new low. But in Jesus' day, they were divided. In Jesus' day, society was, was riven by factions. And the two major factions in Jesus' day were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Now, of the two, the one that you're most likely to have heard of is the Pharisees. They're the famous ones. And the reason that we've heard of the Pharisees is because the Pharisees were the ones that Jesus liked to hurl loving insults at. The Pharisees were the ones that Jesus was always making look bad in public, always criticizing their piety so much so that when we call somebody a Pharisee these days, we don't mean that they believe what the Pharisees believe in the New Testament. We mean that they are a self-righteous person who thinks they're better than everybody else, a Pharisee. When we think about our divisions, our factions, one of the things that we often marvel at is how minor the differences are. If you consider the differences in the church, why it is that that one group of people splits from another group and forms a new congregation, if you're new to this stuff and you're thinking, oh, it must be over some mighty point of doctrine, The sad truth is, no, it's often over things like what kind of coffee is being served before the service, what kind of music is being played, what kind of politics are embraced by the people in the congregation. We make decisions about the most important things in life over points that in the cosmic scheme of things are pretty obscure. And so when we think of factions, when we think of divisions like this, we tend to think of them as as futile on their face, that that all divisions, all factions are basically over nothing. Sort of like the 
the tendency that is lampooned in Monty Python's movie, The Life of Brian. I'm looking around to see if there's a glimmer of recognition in anyone's eyes, because you're the people we'll need to talk to after the service for prayer. But if before you came to Christ, you happened to see this movie, you know that there's this scene that, that unbelievers find hilarious where they're arguing over the factions. Like, are you part of the people's front of Judea? No, I'm part of the Judean people's front, as opposed to the Judean popular people's front, which just has one member. That's the way we think of our divisions. Our factions, meaningless, pointless. We divide just to divide. But the point of the difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees was not minor at all. It was fundamental because they had a disagreement over bodily resurrection. One faction believed that there is life after death, that the body will be raised, the Pharisees. And the Sadducees believed that, no, that's not true. That's not going to happen. This life is all that there is. In the Gospels, it was the Sadducees who tried to trap Jesus with the trick question about the woman who had been married to seven brothers in succession. They wanted to know in the resurrection, which one is she going to be married to, Jesus? Attempting to perform what we call a reductio ad absurdum, to show how ridiculous the idea of bodily resurrection was by showing the practical impossibility of it. You find this account, by the way, in Matthew's Gospel, in Luke's Gospel, and in Mark's. The one you should turn to is Mark. That's Mark chapter 12. They think that they're getting Jesus in a bind, that Jesus isn't going to know how to answer the question, and that this is going to show the absurdity of bodily resurrection and also make them look good in comparison to the Pharisees. And you can understand why they thought maybe Jesus would go along with this, because he was always railing against the Pharisees, And they might have been thinking, you know, the enemy of our enemy is our friend. But Jesus doesn't respond that way at all. Jesus insists on the truth of bodily resurrection. And the logic he uses is incredible. He says of Yahweh, of God, the Father, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. That's Mark 12, verse 27. But then he adds this, You are quite wrong. Later in Acts 23, Paul finds himself on trial before the council and he perceives that the council is made up of some Sadducees and some Pharisees. And so he drives a wedge between them by insisting, this is in Acts 23, verse 6, it is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Once he says this, all the Pharisees are like, this guy's fine. And the Sadducees are like, no, he's definitely guilty. And they start arguing amongst themselves. This prompts Luke to explain to his Gentile readers who might not understand why these two groups are at odds. He writes, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Whether or not there will be a bodily resurrection isn't a minor point of contention between them. These are two diametrically opposed views of reality. These are two realities that cannot be blended. Either there is life after death, or there isn't. Either we resign ourselves to the fact that death is a natural part of life, and that it is the end, or we live this life as if there is life in the world to come. 
We don't have to wonder what Jesus' view on this difference was. Jesus, of course, believed in life after death. And yet, remember, Jesus was not accustomed to handing out compliments to Pharisees. So for him to say to the Sadducees, you are quite wrong, puts some weight behind those words. Paul, on trial, isn't just doing politics. He's just not saying, hey, I could get off scot-free if I could get these factions to fight one another. When he says that his gospel is connected to the hope of the resurrection of the dead, he's not kidding. Because the hope of the resurrection of the dead is essential to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've already read in our lectionary reading from 1 Corinthians 15, uh, a part of Paul's statement on the importance of resurrection. But if you look there in 1 Corinthians 15, I want to call your attention to what comes before what we saw. Paul says, starting in verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You can see in Paul's words how essential this belief in the resurrection is. To deny the resurrection of the dead is to deny Christ's resurrection. And if Christ did not raise from the dead, if his tomb was not empty, we can't just move forward with Christianity as if everything is fine. Paul says, if that's the case, if Christ was not raised, then all this preaching is in vain. It's futile. It's pointless. Not only that, but those of us who have been preaching have been twisting reality. We've been misrepresenting God by telling you this lie. We said Christ was raised. But if He wasn't, that was a lie. If Christ wasn't raised, then your faith is in vain and futile and you're still in your sins. Because to be out of our sins, liberated from the bondage of sin. That was the work that Christ came here to do. That's what he did in his death, burial, and resurrection. If he didn't do it, then you're still under condemnation for your sin. It's even worse for those who trusted in Christ and who have already died. Because the dead in Christ are lost forever if Christ was not raised. They have perished, he says. Our hope for them the fact that as we commit them to the grave, we expect to be reunited with them, that makes us most to be pitied. Because we believe in something that isn't real if Christ was not risen from the dead. So let there be no ambiguity about what it is that Christians believe, what it is that the Bible teaches us. The Gospel rests on the fact of Christ's resurrection. That fact of Christ's resurrection is the basis for our future hope in the Gospel. 
Now, our future hope, as we've said time and time again, is not what we often think it is. Our future hope is not that we will live eternity in the clouds with Jesus as disembodied spirits, that we will die and our spirits will leave our bodies and go for eternity to be in His presence. That is not our future hope. That's just the intermediate state. Our future hope is that we will be raised bodily to everlasting life in the new creation. But if Christ was not raised on Easter morning, if His tomb was not found empty, then our future hope has no basis in fact. There are plenty of religions that go on just fine with a future hope that has no basis in fact. In fact, you will meet many pious people who are happy to admit that the origin story of their religion is in fact pure myth. And yet, despite that, they still have a pious future hope of some good future as a result of the practice of their faith. But we are not those people, and this is not that religion. Christianity is a religion built upon the fact of the resurrection. And our future hope rests on the fact that Christ was raised. The Gospel proclaims the resurrection as a real event that took place in human history. A thing that truly happened in the real world that we live in. A thing that will forever change the real world and transform the reality that we live in. The good news says that the real world will really be redeemed. But if that's true, we have to ask ourselves how it is that God changes reality. What is His method? There's an interesting little fact you'll find in Matthew's Gospel. Something that that is intriguing to come across, but we rarely talk about it. If you turn to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 27, there is a moment where Matthew describes at the crucifixion of Jesus that the veil in the temple is torn in two. But immediately after that, Matthew records this. He says, "...the tombs also were opened." And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. We talk a lot about the rending of the veil, but I don't know about you, I haven't heard a lot of sermons on the people whose tombs were broken open at this moment in Matthew's Gospel. Reading commentary, I came across this qualifier. A note that says the resurrection of the many holy people here, although it's mentioned here to show the connection to the rending of the veil, is materially joined to Jesus' resurrection, which you can see in verse 53, where it says, uh, after His resurrection, they went into the holy city. The commenter adds, it would have seemed strange for them to be resurrected and then to wait in their tombs until Jesus was raised. In other words, Matthew's including this note in the moment that he includes it, not because this is where it happened chronologically. Based on on the way he expresses it, this seems to have happened with the resurrection, not with the crucifixion. But it does fit here thematically because we're talking about stuff that got broken by the work of Jesus. That the veil was torn in two, and the grave was torn in two as well. The old system of Levitical sacrifice was broken by Christ's death. And the grave itself was broken 
by His resurrection so that it could not hold Him or His people. Young people, just a a little note here. As I was reading the commentary, there was this little addition. It says, it accomplishes little to speculate about who these people were or whether they died again or were translated. So I know that this is one of those questions you're likely to ask me for the big question. Hey, what happened to those people? And this theologian says, it's actually useless to speculate. And uh, to that I say, nice try, theologian. We're going to go ahead and speculate. So kids, I welcome those questions, and I'll do my best to answer them. But setting aside speculation, wouldn't it have been cool if this is how it worked? Wouldn't it have been cool if Jesus had been crucified and buried and on the third day rose again, and after that the grave just couldn't hold his people at all? And, and Christians would, would, would die and, and be buried and just come right back up. It's like the grave doesn't work anymore. We can't find a way to keep them in the tomb. That would have been an awesome and an astonishing transformation of reality. Like we lived in a world where people died and we put them in the grave, and now we live in the world where the grave cannot hold them. It would have been incredible. Sin is defeated the moment that Jesus dies. And now, death is done the moment that Jesus is raised. But it turns out the new reality doesn't work like that. Christ's resurrection didn't immediately flip the switch. We didn't go from one reality where death is the end to new reality, everlasting life, just like that. Instead, as you see in Matthew's Gospel, we get a taste, we get a hint of the new reality that is breaking in. And then it almost seems as if the old reality reasserts itself. Like everything changed, and then it looks like it just changed right back. So the question we have to ask ourselves is how does God change reality? Like we know he has the power to change it. My question is what is the method by which he changes that reality? The great theologian Gerhardus Voss, who's famous for his book on biblical theology, describes the history of salvation as a great redeeming process. He says that God works in two stages. First come those acts of God which have a universal and objective significance, being aimed at the production of an organic center for the new order of things. After this is accomplished, there follows a second stage during which this objective redemption is subjectively applied to individuals. So God does a work, an objective historical work, in this case the cross, And then he applies that work by the power of the Spirit to individuals in our own lives, in our own history. So stage one of God's process of redemption is Christ's death and resurrection. And stage two is the Spirit applying Christ's work to individual believers, one heart at a time. Voss goes on to write that God's method is that of creating within the organism of the present world the center of the world of redemption. And then, organically, building up the new order of things around this center. Hence, from the beginning, all redeeming acts of God aim at the creation and introduction of this new organic principle, which is none other than Christ. All Old Testament redemption is but the saving activity of God working toward the realization of this goal, the great supernatural prelude to the incarnation and the atonement. 
And Christ, having appeared as the head of the new humanity and having accomplished his atoning work, the further renewal of the cosmos is effected through an organic extension of his power in ever-widening circles. Paul understood this. He understood that this was the way that God worked. That's why in the days of Paul, he didn't say, oh well, it looked like Jesus' work had been accomplished. For a brief moment, people came up out of the tombs and walked around and we all saw them, but then that ended, so it appears as if Christ failed. Paul didn't say this at all because he realized that this is the way God works. He realized that the resurrection of Christ was that objective beachhead in the present world and that in ever-widening circles, the work of Christ was being applied by the Spirit and more and more people were entering the kingdom. And that this work would take time. In fact, it would take more time than anyone imagined. Because God's salvation was greater than anyone then could have imagined. That work is still happening. Still ongoing, generation after generation, 2,000 years later. But time has changed. And the time now that we spend after the cross is time that we spend in hope. And that hope that we have in Christ Jesus has changed the meaning of death. That's what gets us to our text, in case you thought I forgot. Romans 6, verse 5, Paul writes, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like his. The death of a believer is not futile any more than the faith of a believer is futile. The death of a believer is not a signal of failure, either of Christ's failure or of that person's failure to have faith. Rather, the death of the believer has become a means of union because of the cross. In our suffering, And ultimately, in our death, we draw nearer to Jesus in His suffering and in His death. Every humiliation that you endure as a believer can be born as an echo of His humiliation. If we go to our graves in faith, then we can go to them knowing that we are united with Him in a death like His, which is good. Because that fact means that even death now is evidence of new life. If you die in union with Christ, then you will be raised in union with Christ, as Scripture says. One of my favorite essays by Robert Louis Stevenson is called The English Admirals, where he mentions Lord Nelson, who I quoted at the beginning of the sermon, among others. But there's a phrase that he goes back to again and again to try to explain what was different about the English admirals. He says, the English admirals courted war like a mistress. And then he gives you countless examples of how they did this, how they they chased after conflict. When you read the lives of early Christians, you get a similar kind of feeling it begins to feel like those early Christians pursued death with the same enthusiasm that the English admirals courted war. It's not just the early Christians, but them especially, when we think of those martyrs, it was as if nowhere in the Roman Empire could these people hear of a lion 
and not worry that he was hungry and rush to try to feed him. The Reformers had a similar kind of logic to them. Jules Michelet, in that quote I love to refer to, describes the the Reformers of Geneva. He says, If there be any need of martyrs in Europe, the need of a man to be burned or broken upon the wheel, this man is in Geneva, ready to go with the singing of psalms. When you reflect on those examples, it would be easy to think that those early Christians, those reformers, they courted death like a mistress. But you would be quite wrong. They didn't court death. They pursued union with Christ. And they were willing to go after it wherever it took them. If it took them into the grave, they would follow it there because they believed that if they were united to Christ in death, that they would be united to Him in the life to come. They longed to be united in life to Jesus Christ. And that is the same longing that brings us together here on this Easter morning to celebrate His resurrection. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2, verse 11, if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. As we celebrate His resurrection, We don't just celebrate the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. We celebrate the fact that all those who are in Him will live with Him again. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.